Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. In the late 1800s, there was a man by the name of Jean-Francois Gravelet, who was considered to be the greatest tightrope walker of all time. And he performed under the stage name, The Great Blondine. And in June of 1859, he was the first person to ever tightrope across Niagara Falls. And it was quite a feat. Um, in fact, there was a lot of debate about whether he should even be allowed to do that because that would just you know, trivialize the great falls of Niagara you know, and all that. But, but he got the permission and he, they set up the tightrope and he did it. And actually for the next year, he continually did this on a regular basis. And every time he would cross a Niagara Falls um, on that tightrope, every time he would come up with a new stunt... And it was an incredible thing that he would do. Um, One time he went out there, brought a chair out, sat it down in the middle of the rope there and stood up on top of the chair. Just people were amazed. How does he have such great balance? Um, Next time, he actually took, you know, one of those big box cameras, you know, that were on tripods back then, only he used a bipod. He brought the camera out in the middle of the tightrope so he could take a picture of the crowd that was taking pictures of him, you know. He actually, actually cooked a small meal with a little camp stove out on the middle of the line. And then he lowered the meal down to the people in the boat, the maid of the mist tourist boat below. Honest, true, true story. I read it on the internet. It's got to be true. <laughs> no, he actually did these things. He crossed Niagara Falls tightroping blindfolded. He did it in a sack. He did it on stilts. He did it pushing a wheelbarrow with 200 pounds of sand in it. And every time he came up with a new stunt, People were just more and more amazed. More and more people would show up. And it got to the point where every time he announced it, it was just like there was no doubt, no doubt whatsoever that he could do what he said because he'd done so many other things. It was really, really impressive. And then in August of 1859, he announced his greatest stunt of all. He said he would go across Niagara Falls on this tightrope carrying a man on his back. Anybody want to guess how many volunteers he had for that? (laughs) One. A man by the name of Harry Colcord, who happened to be his friend and manager, actually rode his back across Niagara Falls. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, that man was incredibly brave. Or you're saying to yourself, that man was incredibly stupid. (laughs) Brave or stupid, though, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that he had full, absolute confidence, faith, and trust in his friend to get him across safely. Now, I'm not suggesting we all go out this afternoon and try that, okay? But this whole series, we're talking about doubt and faith and the nature of both of those so that we would better understand the part that they play in our life because we deal with all of these things. We all deal with times of doubt and question and struggle. And so this whole series is about understanding the nature of faith, understanding the nature of doubt so that we can better deal with these things when we deal with them in our lives. And one of the things that we've talked about for this last couple of weeks is the whole idea that faith involves two things. It involves both the intellect and the will. It's both, okay? I decide that something is believable or trustworthy or true, and then I choose to build my life around it. That's what faith is. I decided it is true, and then I start building my faith around it. And life, life itself is really faith's reality check. Because every day, in any given situation, our beliefs are put to the test. What we really, truly believe. And the life of faith is about making what I believe to become what I live. 
That's the whole idea behind this idea of faith. And believe it or not, with all of this, doubt actually plays a role in this, in this growth and in this life of faith. Because doubt exposes the difference between what is my opinions and what are my convictions. And there's a very big difference between those two. See, we believe on three levels. There are things that we say we believe. There are things that we think we believe. And then there are the things that we truly believe. Okay? So on the first level, what I say I believe, that's kind of the public relations faith. Okay? It's, it's, it's kind of um, what I want other people to think I believe. Whether I believe it or not doesn't matter. I just want everybody else to think I believe these things. Okay? It's kind of like, um, you remember in grade school when you did the Pledge of Allegiance? You had no idea what those words meant, okay? But everybody else was doing it, so you said them, you know? You just, you pledged allegiance. You had no idea what you were pledging to. It was a flag for some reason. I don't know why we pledged it. But you, wanted, you didn't want to be left out, so you just went along. You may or may not have believed it, but you said you did. Okay? It's, what, it's actually what pastors live for. When people come up after Sunday morning service and say, what a wonderful sermon, pastor, you know? And you know good and well they slept through the whole thing, you know? <laughs> You get a good nap. That was great. Yeah. There are things that I say I believe, but I may or may not really believe them. I just say I believe them. There's a biblical example of this. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were always looking to try and trap Jesus. And, and, um, but they were always afraid of the crowds that followed Jesus because they didn't want to be you know, looking really strange out there. So what we're finding in Matthew chapter 26 says that the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, did they really believe that? No. They just said they did because they didn't want to get the crowds against them. They were trying to trap Jesus in, in his teachings, so they came across as something that they weren't truly. And they said they believed things, but they didn't really believe them. Okay? On the second level, there are things that I think I believe. Anybody here ever experienced buyer's remorse? You know, you just thought, I have got to get this one thing. If I do not buy this thing, my life will be in shambles, you know. And if I purchase it, my life will be ever, forever good because of this product. I just have to have it. And whatever it costs, I got to get it. I got to buy it. And you go ahead and you spend the money and you buy it and you bring it home and you realize, why did I spend so much money for this thing? I thought I needed it. I believed it would truly benefit my life. But when the circumstances change, I'm less convinced. And there's an example of that in Scripture too. Peter, the disciple. On the last night that Jesus spent with his followers, he said, you are all going to fall away. You are all going to give up on me. You're all going to be scattered. And Peter said, not me, Lord. Not me, Lord. And Jesus said, Peter, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, Lord. And then the circumstances changed. And he was not as faithful as he thought he was. Now, did he sincerely believe that to be the case? Absolutely. I don't think he was blowing smoke. You know, I, th I think he really meant that. I think he really believed that he would stand by Jesus no matter what, even if it meant death. But when it really came down to it, what he thought he believed was not a conviction of his. He was not as faithful as he thought he would be. So there's what I say I believe, there's what I think I believe, and then there's what I truly believe. And what I truly believe, that's what we call core convictions. 
those core convictions, those are the things that we use to direct our lives. It's kind of our worldview. It's how we look at life. The core convictions are the things that shape our values. Our core convictions dictate our choices. Our, our, core, our core convictions interpret life for us. It's by these core convictions that all of life's experience have coherence and have meaning to them. It's the view that I look at life. And that's what I truly believe. And the thing about it all is the best indicators of what my real convictions are is how I behave. It's not what I say I believe. It's not what I think I believe. It's how I act and behave that, tr that truly shows what I believe. And when there's a disconnect, when there's a disconnect between what I say or think I believe and what I truly demonstrate I believe, when there's that disconnect, it leaves the door open for doubt. And that's how doubt happens. Because unpracticed truth eventually becomes impractical and maybe not so true. And faith that is never put to use eventually becomes useless because we've never put it into practice. And so if we never address this problem, then faith gives way to doubt and doubt eventually gives way to unbelief. And usually this happens, by the way, one at, a little at a time, just a little bit at a time. I have very, very seldom encountered people who have said, today I have decided to change my mind. I will no longer follow Christ. I do not believe any of this stuff. I am turning away from it. I live it all behind. I will not be a part of this anymore. I, have, I, don't, I can't remember one conversation I had like that. But I've known hundreds of people who just slowly drift. And little by little, because... It never became a core conviction. It never became the basis for my life. It was a hobby. <laughs> and, and they just kind of drift away. The problem is not with the truth. The problem is not necessarily with the believability or the faith. The problem is in our lack of practicing it. And there's two main causes to this type of doubt. One of them has to do with my commitment. An indistinct commitment will breed that kind of doubt. If I never clearly settle the issue, then it's always up for grabs. And it's kind of like, like someone that would go and test drive a car every weekend but never buy it and wonder why they have transportation problems. Because you never bought the car. You never signed on the dotted line. You never sealed the deal. And we have around here have always said, we want to be a church that is open and available to people who are seeking God. We want to be a place where people can come and investigate this life that God has for them in Christ in a way and in a frame that they can understand it and make that decision. We're all about that. That's one of the core things about this church. However, a seeker doesn't become a believer until they make the choice to commit. Without that choice, without that commitment, they're not truly become a believer. And it's not enough just to see the need or even believe the reliability of Jesus. Somewhere down the line, I've got to make a decision about this. And in truth, to never make that decision really is making a decision. Throughout history, God has always worked with mankind through what is called covenant. That God, over and over again, made these unconditional promises to be their God, to be our God, over and over again. But there was always a response required of the people. 
And that's why Moses, near the end of his life, after he had led the nation of Israel out of, out of um, their bondage and slavery in Egypt, and, and at the end of his life, as he came to the end, he stood before them and he went over. Now, this is what it means to follow our God. And at the end of that whole thing, he said, now I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. <laughs> You've got a choice to make. Joshua did the very same thing. Before the nation of Israel moved into the land that God had promised them, he stood before the people and he says, now you got to choose. Choose today who you're going to serve. Me, my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But you must make that choice for yourself. Jesus did the very same thing. He said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've got to make a decision about this. That's what it comes down to. And that's why, by the way, baptism is so important. Because baptism becomes the benchmark. It's where I publicly declare, I have chosen the way of Christ. I am following him with the rest of my life. As he enables me to the best of my ability, I'm going to follow him. And I want everybody to know that. And baptism is that benchmark. It's that stake in the ground that settles the issue so I can move on from here. If you never make that commitment, you will always be open to doubt. Another one, maybe you make that first step, but there's inconsistent growth. Jesus talked about this. He told the story about a man who went out to scatter seed. And as he scattered out the seed, some of it fell on stone, some of it fell on the path, some on rocky soil, and some in really good soil. And, and the stuff in the good soil, that grew up, took root, and began to grow and bear fruit. But the others did not. And then later he explained that story to his followers and he said this, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to people who hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. There's no growth. There's no root. Now I have been pastoring for 29 years, believe it or not. And I have been in a variety of churches in California, um, Oregon, Washington, and I've been in old churches, young churches, startup churches, you know, well-established churches. I've been a, a youth pastor. I've been a children's pastor. I've been, I've been, I've been a young marriage pastor. And I've, been, I've, I've done probably everything you can possibly do in this field of pastoring. And I have known people who have been in the church and called themselves Christians for years and years and years. And they have a lot of knowledge, but very little love, very little joy. Very little patience, kindness. I was in one church, the Sunday school superintendent. If everything was her name, I won't use her real name. We'll go by the name Bonnie. If everything was going Bonnie's way, life was good. But if she didn't like what was going on in the church, everybody knew. <laughs> and generally, she would choose to chew the pastor out just before he got up to preach. And she'd been in the church for years. And that's what happens when there's no growth. A lot of information, but no real depth. I have also met people who are well into their 80s and 90s and are still learning and are still growing. And they are the most joyful, loving, compassionate people I know. <laughs> because you see, growth has to do with making Christ-like choices and having Christ-like thinking 
and developing a Christ-like character. Those are the outward expressions of this life in Christ. It is growing and maturing. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Not that you would be perfect, but that you would bear fruit. And the question is for my own life as I go through life is, am I becoming a more loving person? Am I becoming more joyful, more patient, more self-controlled? Am I kinder? Am I more compassionate? Because those are the marks of character. Those are the things of growth and maturity. And that's what needs to be happening. Because if it's not, the door is always open to doubt. So for faith to become conviction, for my beliefs to become conviction, what I have to do is I must put it into practice. That's what it comes down to. James writes about this. He says, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds, can such a faith save them? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, what is he saying there? He is speaking to that conviction level of faith. He's talking to your real beliefs, not what you say you believe or what you think you believe. He says, what do you really believe? Because that shows itself out in your actions. God is interested in transforming character. That's what he wants to do in your life and in mine. And faith isn't about God getting people to admit he exists. He doesn't need that. What he is interested in is that we would take on this life that he has for us, that we would enter into this life that he has prepared and made available to us through Jesus Christ, that we actually take this life and, become, and it becomes our own. And there's a lot of misunderstanding on this because people read James and then they read some of the writings of Paul and they seem to be saying the exact opposite thing. Because Paul keeps saying it's all about grace. It's not works. You can't earn your way. You can't pay your way. You can't get your way through. You've got to put your faith and trust in you. And, and it seems like they're saying exactly the opposite things, but they're not. They're really saying the same thing. Paul wrote to the Roman church, through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to faith and obedience for his name's sake. See, there it is again. Intellect and will. Understanding and choosing. And the biblical concept of faith always involves belief and commitment. You can't turn it around. Belief and commitment. And what James is writing about is that ground level, that real, what I truly believe kind of faith. He says, it's got to be shown in the way that we live. So how do we take on this new life in Christ? What is it? How do you do that? How do you grow this? How do you make sure this is happening? Well, one of the things I need to do is I need to learn what it is that Jesus taught. I can't make a decision about it if I never learn that stuff. So I need to begin to learn what is it that Jesus taught. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. This is life. And all of his teachings were describing that life in God's kingdom what that life in Christ looks like. And, and what I need to do is I need to deep down at the deepest levels of who I am, really believe that what Jesus said is really true. It needs to become a conviction of mine that what he said really was the truth. That when he said things like, love your enemies, he was telling us there really is a better way of living than with anger and hatred and the desire for revenge. Then when Jesus said, forgive men when they sin against you, what he was telling us is there is a better way of living than living with bitterness and resentment in your life. 
When Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money, he was telling us there really is a better way to live than being so wrapped up in endless consumerism and slaves to debt. He's saying there is a better way to live. You cannot base your life on these things. You must base them over here. And when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, he was not offering another option. He was saying, this is the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And the problem is that we live in this democracy where we want to put everything up for a vote. You know, we all get to decide. Who believes in God? Okay, he got some majority vote. We believe in God. Who believes in Jesus? Well, and and people, could, you know, people have a hard time with this idea. How can, how can you Christians say Jesus is the only way? That's just so exclusive. We didn't say it. Jesus did. I don't know if you saw this. About a month ago, the Pew Institute for Research um, published some findings in a survey that they did. And they surveyed religion in America, and particularly with regard to dogmatism. Okay? And here's one astounding, astounding thing. One of the findings was 57% of those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, 57% believe other religions can possibly lead to eternity. Jesus didn't give that option. <laughs> to be a follower of his is to say, this is the way, this is the one. Here is what I will put my life upon. Jesus himself, on the night he was arrested, in that garden, when he prayed, he said, if there is another way, if there could possibly be another way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. And that's why he could say, it's through me. So I need to begin to learn and understand what it is that Jesus really taught. And at the deepest level of my life, I need to believe what he said is really true. And then what I've got to do is I've got to examine my own life. I need to, in light of what Jesus has taught, how am I living? How am I living my life? Because James, again, he wrote about this idea of learning without ever examining your life. He said people who look into Scripture and then go away and not doing what it said, people who hear teachings but never do what they're asked to do. He says they're like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves go away, immediately forget what they look like. He says it's like I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I realize I need to wash my face and I really need to shave and I got to trim those nose hairs but I'd rather not so I'll just walk away and not look at it. Because if I walk away then I don't have to think about how I really look. He says that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. The whole idea of understanding what Jesus has taught is so that I would bring my life into line with that. That I would take a look at my own life and how it matches up with the things that Jesus taught. And the longer I have been a believer and the longer I've been a follower of Christ, the more I have discovered how much I need to learn <laughs> and how much further I need to go. Just this week, just this week, I finally decided I was going to buy an iPhone. And so I went down to a store whose name I will not give but its initials are AT&T. <laughs> and I, and I, I was, I was going to go buy my iPhone. I finally decided I'm going to do it, okay? So Monday morning, I get up. I think I thought it opened at 9 o'clock. I got there at 9 o'clock. It wasn't open until 10. So that's okay. Starbucks is right here. I went over, had a coffee. So I'm sitting there. I'm drinking my coffee, reading the paper. And I begin to notice a line was forming. 
Now, I had vowed I would not stand in line. That's why I didn't go on Friday, because I knew it was going to be ridiculous. I'm not going to stand in line for this thing, okay? But, like, there's four people in line now. So I'm thinking, well, okay, there's like 10 minutes left. I, I'll stand in line for 10 minutes. So I made my way across. I got in line. I was number five in line. And as I'm standing there in line, uh, after about five minutes, this car pulls into the, you know, and parks right in the stall, right, you know, next to where I'm standing. And um, this man drove the car, and out comes this, this little tiny, just little tiny Filipino grandma. And she comes up, and she wanders up, and she walks, and she stands right in front of me. Now, you do not want to know the thoughts that went through my mind at that moment. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to open the doors, and I'm going to be fighting a little Filipino grandmother from my iPhone. You know, this is not looking good. They finally opened it. It gets worse. They finally opened the doors, and I walk in, and they say, oh, we're out of iPhones. Could you not put a sign in the window so I didn't stand here in line? So I go, okay, fine. You know, that's okay. I understand. Now, I went online. I believe I am eligible for the upgrade. You know, I should be able to get it at the cheaper price. Could you at least check my account for me? They go online. He says, oh, I can't give you that information. Your name's not on the account. We have for three months been trying to get them to put my name on the account. And every time we say I'm on there, now I'm not on there again. And by then, I was just like, if I say one more thing, I'm just going to explode. So I just said, fine. (laughs) And I walked out the door. And I called my wife, and I just unloaded all of my stress and pressure on her. And I began to realize there's still a whole lot of darkness left inside of me. (laughs) There's parts of my life that are still pretty ugly that I'm not proud of. But if I never examine my life, if I never look at those things in the light of everyday living, then I never grow. And it's really bad to have those thoughts. It's really bad to realize you have those thoughts. It's really bad to stand in front of people and tell them you have those thoughts. (laughs) But the truth is, if if I don't ever examine my life, I will never grow. Scripture must come to bear on every area of my life. And I'm constantly asking myself, are my reactions and behavior honoring to God? Is the way that I handle my finances truly reflection of what I say I believe? My career. My relationships. Can I let go of a grudge and forgive an enemy? Because Jesus said to. Can I surrender a habit and let him take over that aspect of my life? I need to learn what Jesus taught, but then I need to examine how I'm living in comparison. And then, and then, I must act as if it matters. Because it does. It really matters. Not act as in play acting. I need to take action in my behavior. I need to step out and really begin to do things God's way. I need to believe that what he said about life is true. And if I bring my life in line with him, with his help, it will prove out its truth in my own life. I need to live what I say and think I believe. Because learning, learning without doing is worse than not learning at all. 
Jesus said, the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. I'm just setting myself up for a fall. If I never act on this. And the truth is, the truth is one act of obedience is greater for your faith than hundreds of hours of study. One act of obedience is greater for your faith than hundreds of hours of Bible study because it's in the doing that it becomes a reality. Os Guinness wrote this, for faith to obey is for faith to come into its own. For faith to practice the truth is for faith to be most itself. Or as Jesus put it, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 